To all who are weary, come and find strength. To all who are weak, come and find rest. To all who are thirsty, come and find a drink. And to all who sin, come and find mercy in the arms of a willing Savior. Good morning, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here. It's my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. We're going to read the entire parable called the parable of the ten minus, and uh, then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then uh, we'll get to work. Working our way through the passage should probably take us around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. As the crowd had heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned... Having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minus. And he said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask that you would humble us now and make us good students of your word. We acknowledge that without your Holy Spirit's help, we'll not understand this text. And so we pray that you would grant to us your Holy Spirit and understanding that we may pull out of this text the truth that is there and that through this text we might see the glories of Jesus Christ and that we might worship him with our very lives. Amen. What is the mission of the church? Have you ever asked this? What is the mission of the church? Why do we gather every Lord's Day morning? What is our purpose? You might say, what is our business? Well, some say that the mission of the church is to alleviate suffering in the care of the poor. Some would say that the mission of the church is to bring God's justice to the unjust systems of the world, to be peacemakers. Others might say that the the goal of the church is to be a force for transformation of society, to bring the law of God upon the systems of this world. Others would say that the church's mission is to meet her needs, the needs of her people, to provide care and counsel and advice so that the people of God could live happy and full lives. So what is the mission of the church? It's an important question. Actually, the answer that you give to that question will determine much of how you live. It will determine what church you attend. It will determine how you appraise the church you attend. Actually, how you answer that question will determine how you read this parable in Luke 19. So it's a very important question. And it seems to me that the Bible is very clear in giving an answer to what is the mission of the church. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ said this to his followers. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And then again, after his resurrection, Jesus said this to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, so it seems to me the scripture is very clear about what the mission of the church is. The church is to go into all the world to make disciples, witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, gathering disciples into churches that they may worship and obey the commands of Christ to the glory of the Father. That is the mission of the church. Now, of course, the effect of this will be the care of the poor, the establishment of justice, but it starts with the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and making disciples to the glory of Christ. This is the mission, the business of the church. So here's where we're driving this morning. We're driving to make this point. 
that as servants of God who have received the grace of God, we have been given a stewardship from God to exercise the gifts of God for the glory of God. Okay, that's our business, that we as servants of God who have received the grace of God, we have been given a stewardship from God, and we're to exercise the gifts of God in the advance of the glory of the gospel of God. That is our business. And everyone here will give an account to the risen Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in glory. And those who have exercised the gifts of God for the glory of God will receive a reward from God. And those who have wasted the gift of God will suffer a loss. And those who have rejected the authority of God will receive swift and severe judgment from God. All of this is explained in the parable that is before us this morning, so we'll work through this parable together. We'll start at verse 11 as we consider the occasion of this parable, the occasion of the parable, verse 11. Let's read it one more time. So the crowd is there. They're at Zacchaeus' uh, house. They heard these things, and Jesus pr proceeded to tell them a parable, and we're told why. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So if you were here last Lord's Day, you remember what the Lord Jesus said to Zacchaeus. He said, today salvation has come to this house. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the Lord's words given to Zacchaeus that day were packed full of eschatological significance, end time significance. Because salvation was exactly what every Judean was expecting from the Messiah. The Judeans, the Jews, they were tired of the Caesars, tired of Roman rule. They didn't occupy the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. They were tired of paying taxes to Caesar so that they might worship Yahweh. They looked for the anointed one, the Messiah, the Mashiach, to come and to cast off Roman rule and to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah. He fulfilled all these messianic prophecies. And so as this man, Jesus the Messiah, is inching his way toward Jerusalem, end-time expectations are at a fever pitch. And the disciples are about as excited as a TV preacher reading about the red heifers in the Jerusalem Post. They're calculating the number 666 and looking for the rapture. They got their graphs out. They're ready to go. So Jesus tells this parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. He tells this parable largely to clear up some expectations about the kingdom of God and the timing. You see, for the disciples and for many today, eschatology, end times, is all about 
a schedule. It's all about the timing. But for Jesus and his concern for the disciples, it's about a stewardship. They're all thinking about a schedule. Jesus is all thinking about a stewardship. So instead of worrying about when Jesus will return, the Lord is teaching us to worry about what he will find us doing when he does. And so in the parable that follows, the Lord teaches his disciples that what we believe about tomorrow determines how we will live today. That what we believe about tomorrow determines how we will live today. You could say, if you like fancy words to impress your friends, your eschatology determines your missiology. What you believe about the end determines how you live today for the, for the purposes of God tomorrow. If the disciples believed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately and that Jesus was going to cast off all of Rome and that he was going to establish his physical kingdom on the earth, then what would they do? Well, that makes them passive, inactive observers. But that wasn't the Lord's plan for them. After the resurrection, you remember in Acts 1, they asked Jesus, is, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what did Jesus say? He said, it's not about timing. Guys, it's not for you to know the days and time that the Father is fixed. But instead, and we just read it, you're going to be my witnesses. The Spirit's going to come on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So it's not about a schedule, but a stewardship. And that's what this parable is told to communicate. To show the disciples that Jesus is the king, whose kingdom has come and whose kingdom is coming. That he will go away and then he will return. And in the meantime, he has given them a stewardship, a business to do until he comes. A stewardship from which they must give an account. And there's much that we, like the disciples, can learn from this parable. So let's settle in and take a closer look at the parable. First, let's look at verses 12 to 14, where we'll see the characters and the setting of this parable. And then after that, we'll get into the, to the meat of the parable. Verses 12 to 14. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So let's meet the cast in Jesus' parable. There are three, the nobleman, the servants, and the citizens. The setting of this parable goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a man, a nobleman, who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and to return. Now, for us, 21st century Americans reading this, we're thinking probably, Oh, that's a good, good start to a good story. But for first century people in Judea, this was more than just a, a fancy way to tell a story. This was connected to something very real in their own history. And they would have immediately recognized the connection here. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Judea under Roman occupation. And much of the known world of that day was under the control and the rule of Caesar Augustus. 
Now, the Roman Empire was very big, and so the Caesars would establish these vassal kings, these, uh, these client kings that would be under them, and they would rule over these geographical regions. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod the Great was the king over Judea. And Herod the Great was responsible for all these big, colossal building projects. In fact, it was Herod the Great who restored the temple of God. But Herod was not a good man. And at the time, the Jews often resisted Herod's rule. When our Lord was a toddler, Herod the Great died. And his kingdom was set to be divided between his four children. He had three sons and a daughter. His son, Herod Archelaus, was set to be the king over Judea. But he needed Caesar to pronounce him king. So he would have to make a trip to Rome to a faraway country to receive a kingdom and to come back. And before Herod Archelaus did this, he wanted to send a message to the Jews about what kind of ruler he would be in his father's place. And so on the Passover of that year, he had 3,000 Jews murdered. This kind of ruler he would be. And after Passover, he leaves for Rome to a faraway country to receive a kingdom from Caesar and to return. So you see the connection here. In addition to that, when Herod Archelaus was going to Rome, the Jews in Judea sent a delegation after him to petition Caesar to say, we do not want this man to rule over us. And Caesar Augustus, ever the politician, says, fine, he won't be king. I'll just call him something else. So rather than giving in to either side, he makes both sides unhappy. Like I said, politician. And Archelaus returns to Judea. And what do you think he did with those 50 Jews who sent a delegation saying, we don't want him to be king? He had them slaughtered in front of him. Every Judean would have grown up knowing this story. Some probably lived that story. And Jesus is not saying that he will rule like Archelaus. The Lord is building on that real-life story to communicate an important reality about the kingdom of God, that he is the king and he will receive a kingdom. And like it or not, everyone will have to give an account to him as their king. So Jesus is the nobleman in this story. He is the son of God who would go away to a far country and receive a kingdom and return. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, where he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And in Jesus' parable, he calls, the nobleman calls 10 of his servants to himself and he gives them 10 minas. And he tells them, engage in business until I return. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, this may sound familiar. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, there's a very similar parable told by the Lord in Matthew 25, but it's a different one. It's not the same parable. It's a different parable. It's different for a lot of reasons. The amount is given to the servants is far less, and everyone gets the same amount in this parable. A mina, every servant is given a mina, and a mina is worth something like three months' wages for a laborer. So in our day, that would be, I don't know, 10, 15 grand or something like this. 
Each servant gets one mina. And the nobleman goes away, and he knows that he's going to be away for a little while, so he entrusts some of his wealth to these servants and tells them, engage in business until I come. And the expectation is that by the time that the master returns after having received the kingdom, that the mina that they were given will have multiplied. They will have increased the wealth of their master. So that's verses 12 and 13. In verse 14, we're introduced to these citizens, the citizens of the nobleman who hated him. And they did like the Jews did to Archelaus, and they sent a delegation after him to argue against him becoming king. And we'll see what happens to them at the end. So those are the characters. That's the setting of Jesus' parable. Now let's get into the message of Jesus' parable. Verse 15. When the king returns, having received the kingdom, he orders his servants to whom he had given the money to be called before him so that he might know what had been gained from their doing business with his money. The first came before him, said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more, which is great. So he says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Well, then another came and said, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Well, why then you put my money in the bank? And am I coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So the nobleman returns having received the kingdom. And he calls these ten servants to give an account of what they did with his investment. And the first increases his money tenfold. Ten minus more, which is very impressive. I don't know how long the king was gone, but how do you turn... 10 grand into 100 grand, 110 grand, actually. I don't know, investing in real estate, Bitcoin, who knows? But this boy did it. And his master is pleased and says, well done, good servant. Since you've been faithful in so little, I'm going to give you more. And the king rewards his servant with authority over 10 cities, from 10 minus to 10 cities. This is a staggering reward. Right? The boy was faithful in managing $10,000, and the king rewards him stewardship over 10 cities. <sighs> this would be like taking the fry cook at McDonald's and promoting him to regional manager over 10 restaurants. But if you're faithful in little, more will be given. So for those of you who are like me, who are often tempted to think, that the grass is greener on the other side, that the, the job over there must be better, that the church across town has got to be better than this one, that there's a better person who should be discipling me. Well, maybe, maybe the grass is greener on the other side, or maybe the greenest grass is the grass 
that you water. Be faithful in little. The second fella doesn't do quite as well. He turns his one mina into five minas. Huge increase nonetheless, but not as much as the first guy. And the master rewards him with authority over five cities. Now, I'm not sure how much to read into this kind of reward. Does the Lord mean to say that a faithful disciple of Jesus will receive authority over cities in the kingdom of God? Maybe. Jesus did tell his apostles that they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. They would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul does say that we will judge angels. So maybe in the kingdom, apportionments will be given based on the faithfulness in this life, and maybe it will include cities. And if so, some of you are guaranteed to get like 10 cities. I'll probably get one. It'll probably be like Botkins or something. Cities or not, let our Lord's example of the third servant sober us. This servant received the same mina as all the others. And what did he do with his investment? Nothing. Jesus says he stuffed it into a hang handkerchief. This is what it says in verse 20. Look, Lord, here's your money back. I put it in a snot rag. You may want to have it washed off. I didn't do anything with it, but I didn't lose any part of it. My son Micah taught this passage at his Bible study at his church, and he insightfully pointed out that this shows that this third servant did not respect his master because he did not respect what his master had given to him. He stuffed it away in a handkerchief. Now, why? Why would he do such a thing? Well, the servant explains. Because I feared you. He thought him a severe man. This word means rigid, strict, exacting. And notice the servant is blaming the king for his own poor stewardship, for his own disobedience, really. I mean, engage in business until I come is an imperative command. And the servant is blaming his own disobedience on the king's character. So I think Mike is right. The servant did not respect his master. But even if the master has those characteristics, it's the same master for all the other nine servants. Maybe he was afraid of messing up or losing the investment. And so he didn't even try doing anything with it. He just stuffed it away. And the king says, I'll, I'm going to condemn you by your own words. You say that I'm severe and strict and exacting. Well, so be it. Besides, if this is what you really thought about me, why would you disobey what I commanded you? And notice the king calls him a wicked servant. We often think of wickedness as defined by what some, someone does. But here we see 
that wickedness is defined by what some, someone doesn't do. Now, there are sins of commission, to be sure, where we do what we shouldn't do. But greater sins are often those of omission, where we don't do what we should do. And this servant blames his master for his own inaction, for his own disobedience. PPC, understand, no one makes us sin. Situations, fellow sinners, they may discourage you, they may disappoint you, but they do not make you disobey. You do that all on your own. Verse 24, the king commands that the minor be taken away from his wicked servant and given to the fellow who has ten. And those who are around, they object. And then Jesus lands the lesson of this whole parable in verse 26. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Well, this isn't new information. The Lord has taught us this back in chapter 16. He said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. So instead of thinking the grass is greener on the other side, let's get out the sprinklers, shall we? It's a terrible fate to have lost the investment that the Lord gave. But still, there was a fate worse than that. Those citizens who rejected the king's authority, verse 27, gives their heavy judgment. They did not want the king to rule over them, and they are called before him, and Jesus says they are slaughtered. And this is a warning to us all. Jesus Christ is king, and the king is coming again, and when he does, his reward and his recompense is with him. Jesus himself was the one who said, you're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle road. You cannot be indifferent to this person. When Jesus returns, those who have lived as if he weren't their king, those who have lived by their own law, those who have lived according to their own rules, will face the true king on the last day. And they will share the fate of those at the end of this parable. And so if you're here as a non-Christian, I'm glad you're here. I hope this is a wake-up call to you. These are not games that we're playing. This is real life. And so now is your chance to turn from your sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. And you should know that when you do, He is quick to forgive to show you grace, to forgive you of your sins, and to grant to you eternal life. Do that before you leave here today. All those who have rejected God's authority, when they turn from their sin to faith in Jesus, are forgiven and granted new life and given a new purpose, given their very own mina with which they engage in gospel business for the glory of God.
You see, here is the glorious reality that Jesus is teaching the disciples. That everyone here, in one way or another, we have all sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. We want to live our way. We want to build our kingdom, not his. And everyone here deserves the same fate of those at the end of this parable. But yet God sent his son Jesus as an extension of his mercy to save us. Jesus Christ lived without sin in perfect obedience to the law of God. He engaged perfectly in the business of the kingdom of his father. He was faithful in all of the ways that we haven't been. And he gave his life as a sacrifice, as a payment for sin. And he died and was raised on the third day. And now having trusted in Jesus Christ, having been united to Christ by faith, we become the very children of God, servants who are now given a stewardship. So Christian, you have a mina of your own, a gospel ministry of your own. And with it, you engage in gospel ministry until Christ returns. Your stewardship isn't meant to show that you are worthy. Your stewardship is to show that he is worthy. That he would receive the glory that he deserves in saving sinners like us. So Jesus is teaching his disciples about kingdom life. When his work is completed at his resurrection, he goes away and he sends the Holy Spirit and each of his Servants, those who are trusting in Christ, receive the investment of his gospel, are given power by the Spirit to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is our stewardship. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Thessalonian church. Listen to the language of Paul here. We have been improved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Paul used similar language in telling Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. There is a gospel stewardship given to every Christian, a mina of their own. You see, every follower of Jesus has been entrusted with the precious gift of the gospel, the good news of God's grace to sinners. That through Jesus, God grants forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who turn to him in faith. This is the master's riches entrusted to you, dear Christian. And so hear what the Lord, the master in this parable says to his servants, as if the Lord were saying it to you. Engage in gospel business until I come. We have a stewardship. The gospel that has changed your life, given you peace with God, is meant to be shared with others. I'm so often encouraged when I hear of the so many different ways that you are doing this. When I hear of 
two people going out to lunch and talking about the things of God. When I hear men having other folks over to their home for a Bible study. When I hear the fruit that continues to bear from the women's Bible studies. When I hear of gospel business happening at PBC Kids. I'm so often encouraged on Tuesday nights when I leave our prayer meeting for the gospel business that is being done there. Friends, the Spirit of God is at work here at PBC. I hope you see that. So this afternoon, can I just encourage you to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 three or four times. It's a short chapter. It won't take you but a few minutes. But the apostle in that chapter commends the church at Thessalonica for the way that they received the gospel with full conviction, for the way that they became imitators of their leaders and of the Lord, for the way that they turned away from idols to serve the true and living God, and for the way that they shared Christ with others. Those, that is what those saints of God did with their mina. And let us follow their example. Engage the Lord in his word every day. Meditate long over his written word. And let your joy in the Lord swell in your life and let it pour out of your life, overflow your life on to others. You might be thinking, well, what do I have to offer? What can I do in my season of life? I have young kids, very busy, I'm retired. What can I do? Well, there's a lot that you can do, no matter what season of life you're in. And let us not let the seasons of our life, the situations of our life, keep us from the commands of Christ. Be faithful in little. What do you know about God, the joy that you have in God? Just Share it with someone else. Fathers and husbands, initiate in family worship. Teach your children to love the Lord and to love His Word and to love His church. Mothers, keep your ear open for those gospel moments when your kids fight, when they disobey. Older men, disciple younger men. Pick a book of the Bible and invite a young man to study it with you. Older women, invest yourself in younger women. Take an unbelieving friend or family member to coffee and share the gospel with them. Can I encourage you, if you're a member of this church, to take the member's role, which we hand out every member's meeting, and to pray through one section of it every day. Give generously of your time and your talents and your treasures. Pray for gospel fruit through the ministries of this church. Pray for gospel fruit through our missionaries that we send. Give generously to the church to support the mission of the gospel in Pequa, in Miami County, in the world. The king is coming, and this is your gospel mina. And may he find you doing his will when he comes. There is a joy and satisfaction and contentment that comes when you spend your life for the glory of Christ. Out of the abundance of joy in your heart, when you're investing yourself in the spiritual well-being of another person, there is a joy that comes. We deserved the fate of those who rejected their king, but the Lord has spared us. He has given us new life and a gospel business. And it is nothing that we have done. It is nothing that we have earned. It is all of grace, which means 
You can't screw it up. When you do all things for the glory of God, you can't mess it up. So whatever small bit you have, invested in someone else. Follow Jesus and help others follow him to the glory of God. For this is your mission and the mission of the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we have engaged in many businesses. We have neglected to engage in gospel ministry. We've been like that servant who stuffed your mina into a handkerchief. Would you forgive us? Would you enable us, O oh Lord, to see how we can serve the advance of your gospel? How we might give more to see Christ formed in others and to see the name of Christ renowned in the earth? How might we contribute to gospel ministry through this church? And would you grant the joy and willingness and boldness to invest in discipling others? Make us heralds of your gospel who are faithful in little or in big. That the name of Jesus would resound through our church into Piqua, Miami County, into the world. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. Today's assurance of pardon comes from Psalm chapter 123, verse 2, where here's we read, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant looks to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us.